0: Good morning. How are we doing, friends? We are in the middle of something called the Summer of the Mount, which, of course, is our effort to walk you through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, which isn't just a thing. It's when God himself came crashing onto earth and just said, listen, you all have left me and left my ways, and I love you, and I want it to go well with you, but you have to stop changing my commands through your traditions and understand what the truth is. The commands are good, but you need to be corrected in your understanding of them so you conduct yourself in a way that will cause it to go well with you. I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but if you think of anything less than a loving father who wants to rescue you from the foolishness of your own way and believing about him that he's here to rip you off and not getting your mind right to believe that he's really come to set you free, you've been deceived if you believe anything less Then the goodness of God and his desire for you to walk in a life that can only be described as a life of blessing. That's the way Jesus starts. The first time God shows up on earth, and we don't have to listen to prophets and Pharisees and godly leaders. We can listen to God himself. He starts with, do you want to be blessed? Then let my spirit inform your life. Do you want to be blessed? Then mourn over your sin, and you're deciding what is right apart from me. Do you want to be blessed? then harness yourself to my shepherding and leadership and hunger after more of my righteousness and be merciful and pure in heart. Do you want to be blessed? Be, Be a peacemaker. Do you want to be blessed and suffer for my kingdom's sake? Be citizens of the kingdom and live with a kingdom ethic. That was God's plan from the very beginning for his people. That there would be a kingdom of priests. That we would walk together in the love with which he created us to walk and we wouldn't be imprisoned to sin. But this is earth. And so heaven's will is not yet done fully here yet. And so God needs to rescue us, show us what love looks like, not just through telling us what the truth was, but by modeling unfailing, unspeakable, unrelenting love. And so God comes here and He's gonna correct our false understanding of some of the commandments, and He's gonna model for us love. By even though we don't live lives worthy of the king, the king would give himself for us so that he can make us righteous through his own provision. What a God! What a God. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us the characteristics of believers and how they conduct themselves in light of their belief. It's kingdom living for kingdom people, it's a new ethic, and we have to break free from the confusion of the old. And today, We're going to look at what Jesus said about marriage and divorce specifically, and it's going to be hard teaching. But here's the thing, what Jesus says about divorce is not confusing. It's pretty clear, which doesn't make it any easier, it just makes it clear. But there's been so much distortion through our tradition, through our corruption of the command, that has led to a lot of heartbreak. And I'm going to ask you to do me a favor today as I teach this text. I'm going to ask you to just for a moment not think that I'm talking to you about your specific story and your specific um, experience, and I just want you to listen to what God says. And once we listen to what God says, then we can come back and we can, we can wrestle together with your story. But I want to just lay this out as we look at what Jesus says about divorce. I, I my, beg, my, 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 my desire is that you would first focus on what he says about marriage and what he says about reconciliation. And when you get a good grip on what God says about what marriage is and whose marriage is and what his heart for us is as his people to reconcile, then we can move and go, okay, so what do we do with this divorce topic? And I think you're going to see Jesus is very clear. And you're going to see that our traditions, just like the traditions of the first century Pharisees and Jews, have blocked what God intended for us, and it hasn't gone well for us. Now, there's a couple of principles that I wanna just kinda of lay out as we as we get started and take a look at this together. And, and the first one is just simply this, and that is that the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. And so what you're gonna see me do is after we read Matthew chapter five, verses 31 and 32, I'm gonna take you to other places in Scripture because what you don't wanna do is, is find one verse and then Hope it means this and just stop right there, but you're going to have to go and look at the full context of what God says. The context of every verse is the paragraph it's in, the chapter it's in, the book it's in, the Testament it's in, and all 66 books in the Bible. God is giving us um, revelation, and so we have to make sure that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Second, I want to remind you, this is a message for kingdom people about kingdom living, And none of us live the way the king wants us to. This is earth. So his will is not yet done fully here. And some of you guys have experienced divorce. And there's nobody in this room that hates heroin more than people who have been addicts to heroin. There's nobody in this room who hates alcohol more than alcoholics. And I, I believe there's nobody in this room who hates divorce more than those who have suffered through a divorce, who are children whose parents divorced. You're going to see why God hates divorce, and God does hate divorce, but I want to make it very clear. God does not hate divorcees. God hates sin, but he doesn't hate sinners. God demonstrates his love for sinners in that while we are still stuck in our dread trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. And so I want to tell you, if divorce is part of your story, God doesn't hate you. He hates the treachery of divorce. Now, a lot of us have been touched by this, Statistics tell us that up to 41 to 50% of every first time marriage ends in divorce, depending on what study. It's 41 to 50% of first time marriages end in divorce. If you go to second marriages, it jumps up to 67%. You get to third marriages, it's almost 75% of third marriages end in divorce. And one of the things we gotta deal with is our traditions as a people, and by that I mean even the churches. In 1960, America embraced this idea of what's called no-fault divorce, which means that you can get divorced for almost any reason. You're going to find that's always a very popular ethic for leaders to take. And it hasn't gone well for us since we've embraced this no-fault divorce idea. Jesus says there's always fault in divorce. Sin is always the reason for a divorce. It always has been. It always will be. And God knows that when you live in sin and you live outside of what God's intention for you is, it doesn't lead to a life of blessing. God wants it to go well with us. And so I want to teach you a biblical kingdom ethic so you as the king's people can experience blessing. We can be forever thankful that we have a God that treats adulterers and fornicators and disobedient sons and daughters with an unfailing covenant love. And what God asks us to do is when we learn that love is to model it for the world. And God's intention for marriage is that it's permanent on earth, it's exclusive to a man and a woman, and it's illustrative of Christ and his church. That's marriage. Marriage is permanent on earth. It's exclusive to one man and one woman, and it's illustrative of Christ and his church. Now, let me just say this. Here's what's so interesting. Our friends in the LGBTQ community have rightly confronted the church who has said, oh, you guys think that that marriage is just between one man and one woman, and it's permanent? Well, how come there's so much divorce then amongst you? You guys don't care about marriage. You pick and choose your little favorite sins, and you want to make what we're doing sin, but you don't make what you're doing sin. And let me just be very clear. Marriage between anything other than a male and a female is sin. Sexual relations with anything outside of the covenant commitment between a male and female and marriage before God is sin. But the church has turned its back on what I would call, uh, well, God's definition of marriage. And we have endorsed serial monogamy. Now, now, it is a fact that if you're a nominal Christian, and the problem with America is there's nominal Christianity that is rampant. If you're a nominal Christian, do you know that your likelihood to um, experience a divorce is, um, what is it? I'm going to get the stat right. It's almost 20% higher if um, you are a Christian in name only. If you are a church goer, a church attender, but not a Christ follower, you're 20% more likely to get a divorce than people who don't even go to church, than just a moral pagan. Now, you're 30% less likely to get a church, sociologist, I mean, 30% less likely, sociologist tells us, to get a divorce if you are regularly involved with religious activities. They say three times a week you're doing religious activities. You're 30% less likely than society to get a divorce, but Most people who are around um, religious activity or religious institutions are nominal only, and so divorce has been rampant in the church, and rightly have we lost our moral authority, and we're going to try and regain it this morning. Can I tell you how you bring your divorce rate to zero? The way you bring your divorce rate to zero is you live with, in a covenant relationship with, another person who's broken in spirit and is sick and tired of doing what seems right to them and mourns over the fact that they have gone their own way that's led to death. And they say, God, I want to saddle up with you and you direct me and I want to hunger and thirst after your righteousness and I want to be merciful like I've received mercy. I want more God of your heart to be my heart. I want to be a reconciler continually day by day and I want to suffer for your kingdom's sake. You marry somebody like that and the divorce rate goes to zero. If the two of you, pursue that ethic together. You'll dance in the minefield of marriage. I want to start, though, by just kind of doing this. It's kind of fun. These are um, called Chuck Taylor's. I wore them up until I was probably about in seventh or eighth grade, right? Uh, Basketball shoes were not really a thing. I mean, ABA, NBA players, we all wore Chuck Taylor's, right? I remember that. And and, And so Chuck Taylor was actually a semi-pro basketball player who traveled around the country in the early 20th century. And when he got done playing basketball, he went to work for Converse Shoes, and he sold a lot of these, and so they named the shoe after him. But that's not why I'm talking about Chuck Taylor's Shoes. I'm talking about Chuck Taylor's Shoes because of this. This is the sole of a Chuck Taylor shoe. You'll see that it's got um, this interior square checkerboard pattern. But around it, you see all these vertical lines. And those vertical lines, you might think, are there to help give you a good grip on a basketball court. And I would tell you, if you ever wore Chuck Taylors on a basketball court, you will know that's not why they're there. (laughs) They're there because um, there is this thing called um, import taxes. They've been in the news a lot this week. They're called tariffs. There's a 20% tariff on every athletic shoe that is imported into our country. 20% on athletic shoes. Um, And 98.4% of all athletic shoes are made somewhere else. And so you pay a lot for your Jordans because you got a 20% tariff on them. And the folks, the good folks at Converse realized that that was a problem. They couldn't sell these shoes, which really now were no longer really a part of the basketball world. They'd become kind of a fashion statement unless they came up with what is called some, well, some creative way to engineer the shoe to avoid the tariff. It's actually a thing, this thing called tariff engineering. What you see right here outside of this little rubber sole is what looks like a bunch of very small little nubs that stick up. And what it is, it's, it's compressed felt. And it turns out that what makes something not experience a import tax of 20% in America is that you don't make an athletic shoe, you make a slipper. And it turns out what makes something a slipper is if you have a certain percentage of felt on the bottom of the shoe. And so what they did is they put exactly the amount of felt around the shoe to avoid the import tax. It's tariff engineering. Now here's what's interesting about that. Tariff engineering might allow you to escape the US government's ire, but truth engineering does not allow you to escape our Lord's intention. And what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount is there's been a lot of truth engineering. Let me just remind you, as we begin to walk you through this, Connor did a great job of showing you that what Jesus is gonna do is say, you guys have truth engineered my intention. And he's walking you through basically Commandments six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, in Matthew chapter five, verses 21, all the way down through 48. And he brackets this little section by saying this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting into heaven. These guys who tell you that they're righteous with all their little laws and rules and interpretations of them, they're not righteous. You got to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And here's the kingdom ethic for a kingdom people. And so if you want to be righteous, this is what righteousness means. And so he gives you this. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 21, he gives you a command and he quotes the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus uses something six different times in this section. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he's doing, he's saying, you have truth engineered God's intention, but I'm telling you, that's not going to get you past the tax of sin. And so here's how you should live if you're in relationship with me, so that it will go well with you. It doesn't go well with you if you simply don't murder one another with all your backbiting and hateful, malicious living and your slander, and your irreconcilable differences? No, kingdom people are diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And you're not righteous just because you don't put a knife in some guy's back. He goes on in uh, Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-seven, He said, "You've heard it said, the seventh commandment, you should not commit adultery, but it's not just." Enough to not sleep with a woman who's not your wife. Don't live lustfully towards other people. Don't do everything but intercourse with another person. Don't tell me when you're asked the question, do you have sexual relations with that woman? Don't say, well, it depends on what is this. That doesn't work with me. That's truth engineering. But I say to you, if you even look at somebody with lust in your heart, you've already violated my intention for you to pursue purity and oneness with one another. So remove anything that is causing you to be um, tempted to move away from the wife of your youth and from your intended love for one another. Now watch, now he's gonna get into verse 31 into the topic of marriage. And he's going to say, you have heard it said, but he doesn't quote a commandment. It's actually, if he was going through the commandments, the very next one would be, thou shalt not steal. What he's going to say is, you guys quote Moses when he commands you, that when you send a woman away to give her a certificate of divorce, but what you're really doing is you have legalized wife-swapping with your truth engineering. You're stealing another man's wife. You're stealing my intention of what I wanted the marriage covenant to be, and I will have none of it. This is a radical idea Jesus is teaching. It was so countercultural, and I just want to say to you this morning, what I'm teaching is going to be very Countercultural. It's even Christian countercultural because the church, in its desire to be empathetic, relevant, has truth engineered. And we have dumbed down God's intention for marriage. And today, because we have a loving God, He's going to walk us back towards what He intends us to to see marriage is. And we're going to see that we have been imposing our will on the text and we've been taking things to mean what we want them to mean so we can do what we want to do and it doesn't go well with us. I don't know if you've looked at the implications on a society with the breakdown in family and marriage fidelity, but it is tragic and legion in its effect. Children, in fact, of parents who divorce are four four times more likely to divorce, they're more prone to abuse, they're more prone to poverty, they're more prone to imprisonment. There is nothing good that comes with divorce. Now I know you're sitting there right there going, well, he doesn't know my story. I want you to listen to me. Even in the midst of your divorce, God hates it because it's treacherous what's been done to you. And one of the things I want to insert right here is that we've got to break our little mindset that there's only two options, that you either stay miserable and married or you get divorced. There's another option. And that option is that we begin to live with a kingdom ethic. And that's what Jesus is here to do, teach us his ethic. So let's watch this. And I'll explain to you why Jesus inserts a non-commandment here. And again, that leads to us, in effect, stealing and wife-swapping from one another and stealing God's intent for us. But Matthew chapter five, verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, where was that said? It was said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So Deuteronomy 24, I'm gonna read to you what that is about. It is about basically um, sin being in the camp and the nation of Israel in an oppressive patriarchal system having men that had basically truth engineered uh, God's intention for purity And uh, for there not to be infidelity to legalize wife swapping where they could move in and out of relationships with women that was treating them treacherously that God said was an offense to him. And so Moses said, here's what we're gonna do. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now that word indecency is the word that caused the Pharisees to write volumes on what it meant for you to not have favor, no longer uh, see a wife with favor because she's indecent to you. And there was two major rabbinical schools that existed during the times of Christ. Think Harvard, think Yale. Um, Rabbis would often call people to follow them, and the quality of the student is what made the rabbi revered. And uh, the rabbi, if he asked you, you got some sense of value by being one of that rabbinical school's selected students, and these two major schools were Shammai and Hillel. Shammai basically said, indecency can only be defined as a person who's involved in a sexual act outside of marriage where there's a witness. And if you see that happen, then you can write her a certificate of divorce. Hillel said, no, 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 not true. If if you don't have favor, if she doesn't have favor anymore because she's indecent to you, she can be indecent because she gained too much weight since the marriage. She can be indecent because that woman's more decent in your eyes. She can be indecent because she burnt the toast. She can be indecent to you because she talks too loud. She can be indecent because she doesn't do the laundry the way you want to do the laundry, and you can put her out. Now, which of those two rabbinical schools do you think were the most popular during the time of Christ? The one that basically said, hey, if you think she's indecent, put her out. Moses was saying that wasn't just... Uh, Moses was saying that was pretty popular during his time as well. And so he says this, this is what you got to do. When you find this indecency in her, you should write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out from the house. And as and, and she leaves this house and goes and becomes another man's wife, I want you men to know this. That if the latter husband, that she is married because you turned her out, turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband even dies, who took her to be his wife after you sent her out, then her former husband, you, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she's been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord, and you should not bring sin on the land which your Lord, your God, has given you as an inheritance. We're not going to legalize wife swapping. That's what they were doing. They were saying, you're indecent to me, and I want to be an adulterer, so I divorce you. And they would go over here and marry this woman and go, but you know what? I kinda like her meatloaf better than yours, and she is the mother of my children, and I do kinda like the way she runs the house even though she's loud, so I divorce you, and I go back to this woman over here. They were legalizing wife swapping. By the way, this is not just something that um, that Jews during the time of Moses did. Even within Sharia law today, in Islam today, if you're a Shia Islam, there's something called uh, Nikat Mutah, Mutah, which is basically pleasure marriage, where you can have an iman, Who will tell you that what you can do is have a contractual marriage with a woman for an hour or two hours or a day, where you pay her some dowry, which is a fee, and you can have relations with her for the time frame that you arrange, so it's not prostitution, it's marriage, and then the marriage is dissolved at the uh, level of the contract, and then you can return to your previous wife. If you're a Sunni Muslim, it's called uh, Nikah misyar, which is basically traveler's marriage, that we would never expect a man to be faithful to his wife when he has to travel and do business to faraway lands. And so we let him have a relationship with a woman while he's traveling. But it's only during that time and come back. That's still practiced within certain sects of Islam today. And God says that's a tragedy, whether you call yourself a Jew or whether you call yourself a Muslim or whether you call yourself a Christian and you just divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry and you have a serial monogamy, God says that's not the intention. So Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, he's just saying, you've heard the law of Moses. You heard the law of Moses, the 10 commandments. And then you also heard what Moses did, because watch, you weren't reconciling, you didn't remove temptation, so you treated your wife treacherously. It's interesting, we're gonna get next week to where Jesus picks it up in Commandments 8, 9, and 10, and he's saying, you shall not bear false witness, Right, that's actually um, number nine. And he says, here's the reason you're not faithful to your wife, is because you say, well, if I make a vow um, and I didn't make the vow, by evoking the temple or I didn't make a vow by evoking the name of God or I didn't make a vow by evoking the city of Jerusalem therefore it wasn't a serious vow so I can break it and Jesus says no no don't don't play these games with I swore by the temple or I swore by Jerusalem let your yes be yes and your no be no the reason you divorce is because you don't reconcile because you're lustful because you don't mean what you say you mean and because you covet and want something else And so right in the middle of these commandments that we break, we have a breaking of relationship. Let me tell you, the very first casualty of sin was relationship. And the reason our marriages are not what they are meant to be today, and the reason there's treachery and sadness in the land, is because we're not kingdom people living with a kingdom ethic toward one another. We're acting murderously. And Jesus is here to correct it because He loves us, and He wants it to go well with us. Before I get back and, and explain what Jesus is going to say, as He quotes and really develops um, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four, I, I just because we're going to see another spot where Jesus is questioned about this. I want to take you one more place and just show you something in Malachi chapter two, verses thirteen through seventeen. God is just not a fan of ceremony religion. I, I, I sometimes I'm asked to be a part of weddings, and 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 they want to get married in a church. And I'm just like, guys, you aren't committed to God. You're not committed to spiritual things. Oh, yes, we are. We want God to bless our wedding. Okay, well, God blesses your wedding when you're people that walk in his blessing and you're already involved in some activities that, that's a violation of God's intention for blessing for you. Well, I know, but we want to get God to be involved. Let, let me just tell you something. God's going to be involved when you humble yourself, mourn over your sin, and say, Lord, I'm going to saddle up and ride with you And you hunger and thirst after righteousness. You're not doing that in your in your premarital living with one another, you're not seeking God, you're sleeping together, or you're, you're not committed to his level of purity. Why do you want God to bless it now? And they go, well, because we want God in our marriage. Well, then get God in your single life. We say this all the time. People don't have marriage problems. They got single people problems they carry into marriage. I just had this conversation with people go, well, Todd, do we have to be as committed to Jesus as you if we're going to get married in the church? I go, no, you've got to be committed to God for him to bless it. Let me ask you a question. Do you just want the spouse of your child to go through a, a, a public ceremony where they make vows and they do an American wedding where they're serious about a wedding where they really have no intention to be committed to the, the marital vows that you think are appropriate? Do you want them just to go through this order of service? And then on Monday, they're going to say, I don't care what I did. I just did that order of service because you want the order of service. I'm going to live the way I want after I get married. Do you want that? Well, like, go, oh, of course not. Like, well, then what makes you think God's any different than you? God doesn't want to be invited to some order of service that there's no heart behind it. Watch. This is exactly what he says in Malachi chapter two, verse 13 through 17. He says, this is another thing you do. He's telling Israel, this is why you're not experiencing my blessing. You guys are playing games. You've got this Um, truth engineering that is not truth at all you cover the altar of the Lord with tears oh God why aren't you blessing us with weeping and groaning oh God why is our country falling apart why why are we all so sad because you no longer God regard our offerings or accepts the fact that we go to church after 9-11 or we go to church even every week but we have a traditional view of what we do after we go to church which is basically we explain away that God doesn't really want us to be kingdom people So we don't truly live in relationship with you, and we kind of have a conduct that's inconsistent with the correction that you gave us. Now watch. Here's one example. He says, you want to give me an example of why I don't listen to your tears and your worship songs? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. Watch what he says. This is one of the most difficult verses, by the way, in the entire Old Testament to interpret here in verse 15, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think it means when, when he says, and it's kind of a wooden translation, but not one has done so has a remnant of the Spirit. What he's saying is if you had even just a little bit of the Spirit of God in you, you wouldn't do this to your covenant love. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Again, it's really kind of confusing cryptic language. I don't know because if we've lost the meaning of an idiom for the day, or uh, some would say that maybe a scribe got something wrong, and it could possibly mean it's because you no longer are one flesh people, which wouldn't change the ultimate meaning. But what God's basically saying is, hey, listen, you're not going to have a godly offspring if you're not committed to a godly marriage. You don't have any remnant of the Spirit because you have truth engineered what I meant by marriage, and you make it just this thing that you can break when it gets uncomfortable for you. Watch what he says. Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of their youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord. And him who covers his garment with wrongs, I hate, this is what it means. You remember like in high school, like, you know, you get a girlfriend, you take your letter jacket off and you cover in your letter jacket. What it basically is saying is, yeah, you cover in your letter jacket and then you just stab her to death and you treat her treacherously and your garment is, is covered with blood. Because you're one flesh with her. And you said, come here, I'll protect you. You'll be mine. And then you treat her treacherously. Or even if it doesn't mean that you put it on her, it just means when you murder your wife, when you speak poorly about your wife, when you don't reconcile with her, when you lust after another, and you murder that relationship, you're just like anybody who gets involved with a murder. Her DNA and her blood is all over you. And you walk out and you are a person who the whole world can see is not a man who treats a woman the way a woman should be treated some tough teaching and he says right here take heed to your spirit that you don't live this way don't say you're my people and not be committed to my my love you have wearied the lord with your words you say how are we wearied you god in that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and God delights in them. You think I, I am blessing people or, or you bless people that don't do what I say. And when you cry out to me, where is justice, God? Why aren't you taking care of us? I'm looking at you and going, where's justice when you take a vow and you don't fulfill it? Can I just share this with you? This is relevant in this way. Um, you know, you can't drive around right now today in our um, city without coming across Um, little rainbow flags everywhere, which let's just remember what a rainbow was originally meant to be. A rainbow was God's covenant sign that he would never destroy sinful humanity again by flood. But he did say, I'm going to judge sinful humanity. This time, not by a flood, but by a fire. And don't call evil good. Don't redefine love. And as I told you, that's not just something that the homosexual community has done. It's something we have done. We, prayerfully not here, prayerfully not us, but too many Christians have done. I I tweeted this out. I'm driving around town, I'm walking to restaurants, I'm seeing Pride Month 2019 flags everywhere and it helps my prayer life. Because I pray for a land that calls evil good and good evil. We have an opportunity, church, to speak the truth in love. Hearty approval of wrong is not love. And then I put down Romans one thirty two. Romans one thirty two says this, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do these things, they give hearty approval for those who also practice them. That's Romans 1.32, but watch what I said. Please, before you hate me or amen me, read verses 29 through 31. Actually, we'll even go further high than that. Before you go, yeah, amen, we're not gonna give hearty approval to those LGBTQ people. There's some other things God doesn't want us to give hearty approval to. Watch this. Specifically, in verse 27, it says, here's the deal. It says, men abandon their natural function of the woman. What's the natural function of a man with a woman? That he would cherish her and honor her and um, not be oppressive in his strength over her. That he would tell her he's committed to her and stay committed to her. That he would make a vow and keep it. That he wouldn't be murderous and lustful. They burned in their desire for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. That's not just, I think, homosexuality. That's men saying, hey, no fault divorce. That's men saying, hey, send her out if she's indecent and get you another wife and leave her as a grass widow. Leave her as somebody that you despise to kind of make her own way. Make her marry somebody else and and recovenant with another person when she was already covenant with you. Make her an adulterer. That's indecent. It says they receive in their own persons the due penalty there. Don't just think AIDS. Don't just think suicide rates and drug use, abuse within a homosexual community. Think about the due penalty of our error because we have not held to a covenant view of marriage. They're both there. You don't believe me? You just watch what he starts to say. Here we get again in, um, in, in verse 28. It starts to say this. It says that, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. We're going to watch now. Here comes the depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Here come the things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil. That you would tell a woman you're going to be there and you're not there. You tell somebody you're going to love them till death parts you and you don't do it. You're full of envy. I want another wife. You're murderous and slanderous and strife speaking and deceitful in your speech with malice, your gossips, You will you should know what she's like. You would have divorced her too. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, living without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you should also love one another. Aren't we glad God loves us and in our infidelity? Unmerciful, aren't we? Supposed to be merciful as we've received mercy. And although, see who the they is now? Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such those things as we just read, not just homosexuality, which is wrong, there's a whole lot of things that the church has kind of embraced as, yeah, just move on. God wants you to be happy. Well, the blessed way comes when we don't do the evil of destroying God's intention for marriage. Now watch this with me, folks. We can be grateful that there were some people that listened to Jesus speak, and they um, wanted to have a conversation with him about what he meant. And so they, they questioned him, because when Jesus was tearing through the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't interrupting this particular point, but the Pharisees, the, largely the persuasion of Hillel, but also Shammai, when they heard that and said that, that even the righteous, the Pharisees wasn't enough, they'd go, hey, we're not gonna change our tradition. We're gonna kill you and you're speaking of truth. And that's what they did. They came after him. And so a little bit later, they, they went back and they took this conversation that Jesus had in Matthew chapter five, verse 31, 32. Actually, I, I, I need to finish reading that. This is 531, 32, so read it with me. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give a certificate of divorce. I'm going to tell you something here because it's going to come back up. Jesus says, I say to you, this is the truth, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, the word there is pornea, which is um, illicit sexual activity. It's not just unfaithfulness in marriage. It could be with a prostitute. It could be before you're married. It could be anything that isn't God's intention for keeping the marriage bed undefiled, It says, when you leave a woman for any other reason than her adultery, you make her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery also. And you're like, Todd, are you telling me that Jesus says anytime you divorce a woman, unless she's already an adulteress, you're divorcing her, makes her an adulterer? I'm going, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Now watch this, I'll prove it to you. In Matthew chapter 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. They weren't really looking for truth. They were trying to set him up to be accused of being um, against one of these two larger camps. And so they're going to come up and they're going to say, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Because... Hillel thought, yeah, man, if she's indecent because she's loud, gained weight, not as good looking as that other decent woman, okay, then you can divorce her. Shammai says, no, no, only if she's caught in the act of the witness of infidelity. So is it permissible to divorce a wife? And so I want you to watch Jesus' response here. Because he's already told us that if you divorce a woman, For anything other than adultery, you're going to make her an adulterer. And I want you to be careful that you don't assume that Jesus ever says, if a woman commits adultery or a man commits adultery, you have to divorce her. Nowhere in the scripture, nowhere in the scripture are we ever commanded to divorce. The exception clause is not an expectation clause. Can I say that to you again? The exception clause is not an expectation clause. The expectation is reconciliation and remaining committed to the marriage covenant. That's what kingdom people do. Watch this. Right? I'm gonna love you the way Christ loves the church. How much does Christ love the church? Well, he'll never leave her or forsake her. Well, what if the church is unfaithful? What if the church is... um, Adulterous in its affections, men, aren't we all? Aren't we glad that God has an unfailing covenant love for us, a new commandment I give you. You love one another even as I have loved you, so you should love one another. This is a kingdom ethic for kingdom people. Jesus' exception clause is, because of the way society was set up back then, a woman whose husband left her She she was going to starve. She was going to be a widow and and have no ability to provide for herself unless she married another guy. And when she marries another guy, you're making her commit adultery because you left her because she was no longer found favor in your eyes and was indecent. You're making that woman commit adultery. The exception clause is not an expectation that you would leave her even if she was unfaithful. Now watch this. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? I'm gonna read you Jesus' answer, and you tell me if you think the answer is yes or no. Here's his answer. Have you not read, the classic Jesus response, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, he created them? He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they're no longer two. When God has made one, you can't un-one. So what God has made two, it says, they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. What therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. What is his answer? Jesus, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? No. No. God doesn't want that to happen. It's treacherous. Ooh, 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 follow-up question. Here's question number two in this little dialogue. Well, if that's the case, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now watch what Jesus says. Hey, listen to your own question. Moses didn't command you to divorce her. Moses, because you're sinful, oppressive people playing games and stealing and wife-swapping, Moses commanded if you sent a woman away to tell why you sent her away. If it's because she's loud, gained weight, you like that other person more, then you don't... You don't um, stigmatize her by making it look like she's an adulteress when she's not. You write down why you're divorcing her. You tell the world it's because you're a a treacherous, oppressive, lustful, irreconcilable man. And that woman is a victim of your treachery. Moses never commanded Jesus would say this, hey, marriage is mine, man. Divorce, that's on you. That's not my invention. All I did is when I saw you guys doing it, because of your traditions, As I said, no, 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 no. We're not gonna do that. You're gonna tell the world why you're doing it and not make women and children suffer under your your little games. He says, because of your hardness of heart, the word for hardness of heart that would be in one word would be sin. Moses permitted, he didn't command you to divorce. He commanded you to give a certificate of divorce when you did it and say why you sent her away. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for pornea, which again, that's not even infidelity. That means anything. If you want to be faithful, like that could just basically mean, listen, we're all adulterers. If you go back to Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's sexual immorality. And then Jesus comes back. If the exception clause is porneia, which is the word, the Greek word that's there in Matthew 5 and also in Matthew 19, then everybody's got a permission to divorce because all of us have lusted in our heart. Would you say that's an acceptable permission because you're dealing with a flawed human, you can just walk away? Man, we'd have divorces every five minutes. The word here, and the, 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 the language here the, um, that he uses, you're going to marry... Uh, when you divorce her, except for the fact that she's already immoral, you make her an adulteress. In other words, um, it doesn't say she becomes adulteress, You make her commit adultery. It's like a passive verb. You put it on her. You cover the garment in blood. And that woman's gonna remarry and she's gonna unone because you left her to become one with another. She's not already done that. You're making her do that in that society. And Jesus says, I want nothing to do with that. That's not my covenant love. Do you see this? I want to say again. The exception clause is not an expectation clause. He's just saying, this is just what's happening, people. Now the disciples are listening like, what? What? You mean we're supposed to be committed like all the way? Like like when we say we're going to love somebody, we're going to love them no matter what they do? Man, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. I'm like, I'm so glad they said that, right? Because like, and so Jesus hears his disciples because the Pharisees are kind of done now right? But the disciples go, hey, Jesus, question. If that's what we're getting into when we get married, it's better that we shouldn't marry. Watch what Jesus does. He doesn't go, oh, boys, well, let me walk that back a little bit. He doesn't walk it back at all. Here's what he says. Well, not everybody can accept this. Not everybody knows that I'm a good king. Not everybody knows that I want it to go well with you. And so they, they get truth engineering going. And they find churches that are going to say, God wants you to be happy. Just move on. It's okay. They find teachers in accordance with their own desire and lose all moral authority in society. Look, guys, some people are born. It's tragic because sins in the world, some people are born and they don't have fully developed sexual organs. We call them eunuchs, hermaphrodites. And they're made that way, if you will, by God. It's, it's a tragedy. In this, in this broken creation, God is permitting that some people are born that way from their mother's womb where they can't function sexually. And there are others who are made eunuchs by men. In other words, they're typically um, guys who had a harem who were living ungodly lives would put people to watch over the harem and so they wouldn't mess with the harem, they made them eunuchs. Which is just basically a steer, a castrated bull. And then he says... And some are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And they're not driven by their sexual desire, or their need to go and satisfy their flesh in a relationship. No, they made a commitment to a woman that they would love her till death parts them. And, and when that woman breaks their heart, they're, they're going to stay committed just like Christ is committed to the church. That's the kingdom ethic. And the world's going to go, what kind of love is that? And you're going to say, well, it's the kind of love that God has for me in my unfaithful Adulterous heart, and I'm His God. I think, oh man, that's that's crazy. Well, I'm I'm the King's servant. Jesus says He was able. To accept this, let him accept it. Do you see what Jesus is calling people to? What he's basically saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When you make a covenant commitment, make a covenant commitment. Can I just, just say this to you right here? A couple of things. First of all, this is why, to my single friends, just listen to me, single friends, this is why we beg you to not just marry some guy because you meet him at the porch or he carries his Bible to church, No, you wanna find a guy that is already well married to God, somebody that said, you know what, I'm gonna leave the world, I'm gonna cleave to God, I'm gonna hunger and thirst after righteousness, I'm gonna become one with God. His will will be my will, his way will be my way, and you watch him be faithful in his relationship with God. You watch him when when he breaks the covenant of purity and honoring God to repent and seek forgiveness and be restored to God, and you watch him love God and be well married to God. And then he can, in the midst of that, if you're well married to God, the two of you can continue to pursue God together. That's the kind of marriage which will be a blessing to you. That's why he says, oh, please, man, don't be unequally yoked. Don't just find some nominal Christian because nominal Christians are 30% more likely to divorce than than good pagans. It's why when I get married, when I'm marrying couples, and, and I'm walking them through premarital counseling, you know, I just say, hey, guys, first of all, let's just talk about your fidelity to God right now. How are you guys doing in your purity with, with one another? Well, you know, we're struggling. Okay, what, what do you mean, right, by struggling? It usually means, well, the world doesn't think it's ridiculous to really be pure before you're married. You know, you got to you know, try it on before you really do it. and um, you know, So we're not going to sleep together, but we're doing a lot. We're doing more, maybe more than we should. I'm going to wait a minute. I thought you guys knew that the only thing that was going to make this marriage work is if you married somebody who's poor in spirit who mourned over their sin, who said, God, I'm going to saddle up and ride with you and be gentle and meek and let you lead me, who hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Do you guys think what you're doing is righteous? And if you don't, then why are you going to keep doing it? And especially why are you going to keep doing it say so you want God to bless your marriage? Because you're marrying somebody that doesn't want what God calls is going to be the blessed way already. I say to couples all the time, man, you just need to know you're marrying a girl that doesn't care What God thinks. And you're marrying a guy that doesn't care what God thinks. He's going to do what he wants to do. That's why premarital sex is such a tell. That probably on the other side, there's going to be some times you're not going to want them to do some things But they're gonna say, well, why does it surprise you that I'm not gonna really do everything that God wants me to do or that now you want me to do because in my previous marriage to God, I didn't do what he wanted me to do and you didn't do it with me either. So now I'm just gonna do what I wanna do over here. Don't be surprised. It's likely going to show up again on the other side. So what do you do if you're struggling with that? You repent, you confess, you make no provision, you remove the temptation, you date in the daylight, you date in couples and you move towards purity and you say, I know the world would say it's okay for us to jack around, mess around, feel each other up. But God doesn't, and I want you to show I'm serious about God. And when I'm serious about God, you can be sure that I'm going to be serious about not treating you treacherously. By the way, here's the other thing I do. By the way, if you haven't noticed yet, I'm, I'm a buzzkill to invite to your wedding. I just am. <laughs> Because here's what I'll do, right? When I'm going to marry a couple, I go, okay, here's the vows, right? I, Todd, take you, Alex, which is my wife's name, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and hold, from this day forward, for better or worse, the sickness for health, I'm forsaking all others. I will keep you only to myself as long as we both shall live, unless you sleep with the mailman, or you gain too much weight, or you just nag me a little bit too much, or, right? Have you ever heard a guy say that? How about this? I, Alex, take you, Todd, to be my lawful wedded husband, have and hold from this day forward, said, health, for better or worse, and taking all of those, I keep you only myself unless you just look at porn a little too much, unless you're mean, unless you raise your voice at me, and then I'm out. You've never been to a wedding where anybody put an exception clause to covenant love. No, they all sit there and they say, I will love you as Christ loves the church. And we make a mockery of God so I just, when I'm marrying couples, I just say, let's just put it in. What's the thing that's gonna make you feel like you can send her away, that she's indecent to you, that you no longer have to love her with Christ's unending love? Let's put it in your vows. Let's tell the world and God that that's all you're committed to. I have never had anybody take me up on it. They always go, no, 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 we want the, we want the Jesus, Jesus church vows, we want those. And I'm like, me too, man, me too but I want you to be Jesus Church people because it will go well with you if you are. Are you too modeling that you're committed to that already? Then let's go, let's run to the altar. Let's honor him. So what do we make of all of this? What do we do? Let me just run you through a few basic questions. Number one, what should I do if I'm contemplating divorce today, Todd? You don't know my story. Now we're gonna get to your story. First of all, I would just say, man, go to re-engage this Wednesday. Right? Come. It's an easy next step. And by the way, that's true. The goal of marriage is oneness. The goal of marriage is not just being undivorced. Being undivorced is not kingdom success. God wants you to cherish and honor and move towards each other in oneness. He wants your marriage to be a delight and an honor to him in the way you seek the welfare of one another. Go to re-engage. It's an easy next step. There is nothing we have not seen God restore. When people get poor in spirit, pure in heart, merciful, peacemakers, God shows up. But I would say if you're contemplating divorce, hang in there, get help, there's hope. I know you don't believe me, I know that you think your circumstances are really unique and I'm just saying, hang on, it's worth it. You don't know my story, Todd, you're right, I don't know your story but I've heard enough stories to, to see and to be convinced that there's no marriage that's outside of God's reach. Well, you don't know my husband. The moment you believe that Jesus can't change your husband, you've become practically a non-believer. But I just want to say this. What should I do if I'm being abused? And I would say, get safe. Get safe immediately. It's not loving to let somebody abuse you. You should call it sin and treachery. That's what it is. You should remove yourself from the presence of that person. You should pray for repentance for that person. You should not go back to that person unless as you walk with God's people, um, they're committed to repenting and reconciling and make sure that others see that. Don't have the syndrome that sends you back to the batterer and back to the batterer, back to the batterer, but you stay there committed and let God go to work, but don't stay there and be abused. You gotta reject the lie, I would say to you, that you only have two options, which is to stay miserable and married or get divorced. There's a better way. There's another option. Okay, well, Todd, what do I do if I'm I'm already remarried? I've divorced and I've remarried. And I'm gonna say, confess what you've done. Be very specific. It's adultery. It's adultery. And ask God to forgive you. Embrace the truth of what you've done and ask God's forgiveness. Do the same thing you did when you were unfaithful to God and you became a believer. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You've got to embrace the really difficult truth that I live treacherously. I said one thing and I did another. And don't look for a loophole. Isn't there an exception clause? No, here's the loophole. Get right with God through confession, repentance, grace, and humility. Own it. Call it what it is. Quit fighting, quit justifying, quit telling the story. Just go, I, I didn't do what God wanted me to do. And I tainted my king's name. And oh, how great the grace and love of God is. Does this mean God won't bless my next marriage? Does this mean God God's going to th- th- ruin this marriage? No, you're, you're not blessed because. You deserve it. You're blessed because he's a God who blesses us. God doesn't let us earn blessing. We, we are blessed when we walk in obedience and humility and wisdom with him. Obedience is the blessing. Well, do, should I divorce my wife that I'm currently married to, my husband I'm currently married to? No, you took a vow. Don't, don't commit a sin to make a, a previous sin right. Just, just own it. Go back to your children, to those families, to your ex-spouse. Get on your knees and just say, I didn't know how to love. I talk to couples all the time. They say the same thing to me. They say, Todd, if I'd have loved my first wife or my first husband the way I'm working diligently right now as a follower of Christ to love the second one, I never would have been divorced. I wouldn't have split holidays and confused kids. And so, What you do if you're divorced and you're married, man, own it. If I'm divorced and I'm considering marriage, what should I do? And I'd say, here's my hope for you, that you would just take some time off and you'd lean deeply into Jesus and see his heart for marriage and reconciliation. And that his grace is really a sustaining grace. Show people the sufficiency of Christ. Show people the love of God. This is why, again, man, unless your name is Hosea, don't marry a Gomer, it's gonna hurt you, right? But that's what Hosea did. Hosea was called by God, you're gonna marry this girl. Who's Gomer? Gomer was a girl that gave herself away to prostitution. She had children with other guys. Hosea even paid the prostitution fees. He supported her, and when she came back, he bought her back and redeemed her for the price of a gourd slave. And the world said, Hosea, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm modeling for you God's love for Israel and God's love for his people. That's crazy! God's love for us is crazy. You go, Todd, that's really hard teaching. And I just would say to you, not all men can accept this statement, but to those whom it's been given. And Jesus is saying, I give it to my kingdom people. Todd, that's really hard. I know it's hard, but I want you to see that his grace is enough. I, I pray that you would learn to live by that grace. And that, your prayer would, that you, would, my prayer for you would be you'd fall so deeply in love with Jesus you'd start to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Some of, my, some of my favorite people at this church, some of my heroes in the faith are folks that have been treated treacherously by their spouse. And are fulfilling their married covenant vows. When the whole world's saying, oh man, God wants you to be happy, move on, move on, move on. God does want you to be happy, but the blessed way is his love. And I would just say, After spending years, and I mean years with Jesus, if you're still convinced that there's freedom there for you to get remarried, I would just say call it what it is. You're breaking the marriage vow. You're gonna commit adultery and you're gonna go that direction. Just call it what it is. Just don't, don't play games. Being divorced does not mean and present you from being a person who represents the king's heart. Somebody might say, well, Todd, if I'm I'm divorced, Is this church for me? Yes, this church is for sinners. I am so unfaithful to the Lord. I've been unfaithful to my wife with lust. So I haven't slept with a prostitute or slept with another man's wife. I've been unfaithful by the definition of Matthew chapter 5. I'm a sinner who needs God's grace and mercy and prayer and redemption and a wife that's committed to me spurs me on to love and good deeds, and when my tone is abusive, she says, Todd, I'm going to widen the circle. We don't want to speak to each other that way. We're going to reconcile every day. We're going to be peacemakers. We're going to be merciful because we've received mercy, but we're going to get after this thing, and we're going to model Christ's unending love. Some of you guys have been treated treacherously, and I must tell you, you have a chance to model that love still, to have an alien love, a supernatural love, the love you said in Jesus' name you would have. Father, I pray for my friends in this body that we would not just throw out idle words and make ourselves feel good. This is a hard teaching, Lord, but I thank you that you are a gracious God and that we have everything necessary to love the way you have loved as we depend and abide with you. But, Lord, apart from you, we can't do it. There's just no way. Would you just forgive us, though, for truth engineering because it's just easier and more popular and just seems even even, seems loving to not make marriage what you have made it. But Lord, we repent. We see what you made marriage and we see what it's done to kids. We see what it's done to our society. We've called evil good. Will you forgive us? Would you help us to be kingdom people? Would you forgive those of us that have never been divorced and never committed adultery, but we're not pursuing oneness? Would you restore a high covenant view of marriage that we would run to oneness together and get on our knees and pray and seek your will for our life. For my single friends, Lord, may they leave this world and cleave to you, become one with you, and never align themselves with anybody who's an adulterer in their intimacy with you. May they find somebody else whose heavy direction of their life is towards purity and righteousness so that they can have the, marriage that you want them to have, but help us to be your people. Help us to live with a kingdom ethic as your kingdom people. We love you. We thank you for grace. We need it all. Thank you that we're your church, and you love us with an unfailing love. Amen.